The Myanmar junta's latest attack on Kachin State, Indonesia bans medicinal syrups, and job scammers in Southeast Asia. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is October 27th, 2022. On today's show... I'm one who believes there could be trade-offs between the four pillars. There could be incentives built into the process. There are already some incentives that are you know, kind of being put forward at the get-go, which you usually don't see. But the upskilling initiative that is taking place that's supported by 14 U.S. companies that's going to provide skilling opportunities for at least 7 million women in Asia, you know, that's a kind of sweetener right at the beginning. That was Ambassador Ted Osius, who spoke with Greg and Alina this week on how the private sector views the Indo-Pacific economic framework. I'm excited to hear more, and I'm so glad you're joining us here today. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Mike Tiernan in the studio. Mike is a fall semester research intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Welcome, Mike. Thanks so much, Karen. Happy to be here. So, Mike, how does it feel to be on this side of the microphone? It feels strange. It feels uh, pretty surreal, but happy to have the chance to record. Amazing. Well, let's get into it. Our first story today covers Myanmar, where the military launched a series of air raids in Kachin State over the weekend. The strikes killed at least 50 civilians, including concert goers, singers, and musicians who were celebrating the anniversary of the ethnic minority's main political organization, the Kachin Independence Organization, or KIO for short. Mike, could you tell us a little more about this? Of course, Karen. As you mentioned, the attack occurred on the first day of a three-day celebration of the founding of the KIO and its armed wing, the Kachin Independence Army. The concert was held at the same base the militias used for military training, and the Myanmar government's information office later justified the attacks as, quote, a necessary operation, end quote, in response to, quote, terrorist acts carried out by the Kachin group. The airstrikes have recorded the highest death toll of any single airstrike since the Myanmar military seized power in February of last year. Following the attack, a spokesperson for Myanmar's shadow national unity government called for the international community to hold the junta accountable. The United Nations office in Myanmar also condemned the excessive and disproportionate use of force by security forces against unarmed civilians. The incident occurred just days before ASEAN foreign ministers convened an emergency meeting in Indonesia where they discussed alternative strategies in implementing the stalled five-point consensus to push forward the peace process ahead of next month's ASEAN summit in Phnom Penh. Moving on to our next story, Indonesian health authorities announced this week that they are investigating a sharp rise in the number of children's deaths from acute kidney injury, or AKI, this year. The 141 deaths account for more than half of AKI cases among children in 22 provinces this year. The sudden episode of kidney damage and failure has been linked to harmful substances in medicinal syrups such as ethylene glycol and diethylene glycol. Earlier this month, the World Health Organization issued an alert over four Indian-made cough syrups that contained the same ingredients and were potentially linked to cases of AKI in the Gambia, where nearly 70 children died. Karen, can you tell us about what makes these chemicals so deadly to children? Well, Mike, ethylene glycol is commonly used in automotive products such as antifreeze and brake fluid and can be fatal even if ingested in small amounts. Indonesia's health minister said that the chemicals were impurities of non-dangerous liquids normally used to make cough medicines more soluble, and the Indonesian government has imposed a nationwide ban on the sale and prescription of all syrup-based medications. More recently, the Indonesian Food and Drug Agency identified five syrup medications containing excessive levels of ethylene glycol and has ordered the producers to pull them out of circulation and destroy all remaining batches. 
In a more positive turn to this news update, however, both Singapore and Australia have extended their assistance through sending Indonesia vials of fomepazole, a medication used to treat patients suffering from methanol and ethylene glycol poisoning. A true sign of diplomacy at work. So speaking of Australia and Singapore, didn't both countries also sign a green economy agreement recently? Yes, another big diplomatic win. Australia and Singapore inked a landmark green economy agreement on October 18th, which came at the conclusion of Singapore Prime Minister Lee Hsien-Long's week-long trip to Australia. According to Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the agreement will reduce barriers to trade in environmental goods and services, foster convergence on regulations and standards, and ensure a smooth and inclusive transition to a green economy. Other areas of cooperation include decarbonization, clean energy, and business engagements and partnerships. This agreement could also build momentum for existing clean energy initiatives, like the $20 billion Sun Cable project. For anyone not familiar with it, Sun Cable is a Singapore-based startup that plans to build the world's longest subsea high-voltage cable to export solar power from Australia to Singapore. While construction won't begin until 2024, it's an exciting development in clean energy, nonetheless. Both prime ministers also link clean energy adoption with job creation. Through the agreement, Singapore and Australia both hope to create good jobs in green sectors. Okay, let's stay on jobs, but shift to the job scam crisis across Southeast Asia. For a bit of context, scam syndicates largely run by Chinese gangs have been coercing young people from Thailand, Malaysia, and India, among other countries, into targeting their compatriots in online fraud schemes. So on October 17th, the Malaysian International Humanitarian Organization sent a letter to the Chinese ambassador of Malaysia urging China to help save the Malaysian individuals currently stranded in Myanmar as victims of human trafficking. The Chinese embassy in Malaysia did not issue a response. And we should note that Malaysia is not the only country suffering from the crisis or the only one responding to it. Governments across the region have gone on defense, hoping to protect their own citizens by raising awareness about the crisis. Thailand's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has repeatedly warned its citizens of the risks and tactics of this new form of human trafficking. In a recent social media post, the Thai embassy in Yangon warned its nationals to be wary of high-paying job offers in Myanmar that could inadvertently lead to prostitution, drugs, and debt bondage. It's actually worth contrasting Yangon's inaction with Phnom Penh's reaction to the crisis. Despite its historical role as a haven for syndicates, Cambodia has responded to international pressure by raiding scam centers and making arrests. Between January and August of this year, the government rescued 865 foreign victims. It's unlikely, however, that Myanmar's junta will do the same, especially because many of the syndicates operate from the frontier between China and Myanmar, where Yangon has little power. And that wraps up the headlines. Thanks for stopping by, Mike. Glad I could join you, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Ambassador Osius. Stay tuned. Hi, listeners. This is Greg Poling, back for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. And as always, I'm joined by Alina Noor. Hello again. And today we have a very special guest, Ted Osius. Hi, Greg. Hi, Alina. So Ted is uh, a longtime friend of CSIS uh, and the podcast. In fact, at one point, 10 years ago or so, Ted and I had offices down the hall from each other when he was a visiting fellow at CSIS. But the reason he's on today is that he's, he's gone on to loftier heights, currently the president and CEO of the US ASEAN Business Council, and recently the ambassador of the United States to Vietnam. So Ted, thanks so much for being on. It's a pleasure, Greg. I'm always happy to talk about Southeast Asia. So the reason we have Ted on is because it's kind of economic summit season, right? The eyes of Washington are turned toward the Indo-Pacific, as they rarely are. Next month, we've got the series of big summits. We've got the ASEAN East Asia summits in Phnom Penh, 
the G20 in Indonesia, and then the APEC summit in Bangkok. And in the background of all of that will be whatever sideline meetings happen regarding the U.S.-led Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the, the first big ministerial of which took place last month in L.A. So, Ted, just as a, a scene setter, how are, how's the business industry and the, the council's members feeling about economic prospects in the region at the moment? Well, we were looking for an initiative, and now there is one. And the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is not perfect, um, but it's what we've got. And it's opening up a lot of really good conversations. So I think, in general, the business community is optimistic. I see all three of those summits as opportunities to get the right people together to set the stage for productive discussions over the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework in uh, all of its pillars and with all of its complications, seven of the 10 ASEAN countries have signed up and they've signed up for all four pillars of, of IPEF. And I think that's a really good sign. What are some of those conversation threads that people are excited about? Kind of the clearest one is that there are these discussions on supply chains. And uh, I think that may be the area where there could be some early agreements, some early harvest, because I think if you're an ASEAN nation and the United States is talking about friend shoring, is talking about resilient supply chains, nimble supply chains, then you see opportunities. So, for example, the Malaysians signed an agreement with U.S. Department of Commerce on providing computer chips because they're really good at packaging computer chips. Uh, so I think that's a sort of an early one. But then there are opportunities, particularly when it comes to the digital economy and the trade pillar, and there are certain, certainly opportunities on the clean energy, clean trade pillar, and the fair trade pillar, which is the one that's addressing corruption and taxation. But I think the, there's probably going to be immediate attention on supply chains. To remind readers of the four pillars, we have the trade pillar, kind of everything that we'd normally think of as trade, including environmental and labor standards, and digital trade, maybe most consequentially, problematically for those who wanted to be separate. You've got decarbonization, clean energy, like you said, supply chains, which in the wake of both COVID and, and computer chip shortages and everything else is probably getting the most attention. And then I find it interesting that you talked about opportunities in the fair trade, because that one, the anti-corruption taxation pillar, is the one that's been most unclear. Do we really know what's going to be in, in pillar number four? I don't know if we know exactly what's going to be in it, but it it's all of the 14 have signed up for it. That was a surprise to me. I thought there would be some who would sidestep that pillar, and they haven't. What that signals to me is that, particularly when it comes to ASEAN, those governments have decided we can use this as an exogenous event. We can use this as an action-forcing event to bring about some of the reforms that we already want to have and that are politically hard to do. And I think that can apply to any of the four pillars, but I, I'll bet it will apply to the fair trade pillar. But can I just come back to digital for a moment? Because I think what came out of Los Angeles, the, the four ministerial statements, is a clear statement of ambition. And I've asked, you know, negotiators about this. Every single word of those ministerial statements was negotiated with all 14 countries. And in the, the digital piece of the trade pillar, they talked really clearly about trusted and secure cross-border data flows. It's the first time that all those countries have gone on record saying that they want to have not free flow of data, but trusted and secure flow of data. And they talked about inclusive, sustainable 
growth of the digital economy, and they spoke about responsible development and use of emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence. And this signals to me right away, this is not pie in the sky, this is ambition. And again, I think it means that the countries in the region want to use IPEF to bring about some of the reforms that they know are necessary, but that are hard politically to do. Reminds me a lot of the TPP, actually, where countries and trying to negotiate and convince the domestic population to sign on to the TPP, use this as an exogenous reason to force reforms. Do you think that the countries now within the IPEF framework will have that same will and agency to bring to bear on the negotiations, or will it be mostly led by the U.S.? Uh, the indication so far is that it, even though led by the U.S., it's really a, a group discussion and a, an inclusive discussion, one where the U.S. is listening as well as talking. And that's good, actually. That bodes well for negotiations. But I agree with your characterization. That was what made the TPP move along the, at the speed it did, was a decision by governments to use it to bring about needed reforms. And, you know, now we don't have in the mix the market opening or market access provisions that the TPP had, but there are built some built-in incentives in the process, uh, which makes me believe that it's got legs. So here's where I struggle with that argument, which you hear from particularly USTR, that there's other inherent carrots that market access isn't the only thing. But the four pillars are a la carte. So offering a boatload of money in supply chain resiliency doesn't make it any easier or incentivize countries to sign up for onerous environmental or data provisions in the first pillar, right? If I had to put money down, I would assume that we're going to get really far with two, maybe three of the pillars. And a year from now, we're still going to be arguing about the fundamentals of pillar one until the U.S. agrees that this isn't working and maybe we need to do something different. Tell me why I'm just a, a horrible cynic. Well, I mean, I hope you're not right on that. One of the things that we don't know is what happens a few weeks from now in terms of the composition of the Congress. And so how much the hands of the, our negotiators will be tied by a new Congress or actually whether they have more wind at their backs. And, and actually, I say that not in a, in a partisan way, because it could be that there will be pro-trade elements of the Republican Party that are going to provide some energy for these discussions. There have been initiatives by key Republicans to make sure that IPEF is, is as inclusive as possible and as ambitious as possible. So maybe, maybe, maybe I'm being super optimistic. Maybe there will be a little bit of bipartisanship in the way we approach this challenge, at least when it comes to trade with Asia. I mean, having survived the trauma of TPP just barely, again, this reminds me so much of what happened in the past. Like, what safeguards are there to ensure IPEF doesn't go the way of TPP after, you know, the events of the next few weeks, i.e. the elections? Well, I bear the scars of one of those who I spent two and a half years of my life on TPP and very much believed it was in America's interest, that it was a strategic agreement, that it was the right thing to do to not only to keep us at the table, but have us instrumental when it came to writing the, the rules. I think what they've done by setting this up 
the way they have is they've recognized the political limitations that they face. And as we, you know, we wish it weren't so, we wish they could be absolutely ambitious when it comes to raising the standards of trade. But I think there's been a, a recognition of reality. What we don't yet know is how much they'll involve Congress. Our trade partners would like Congress to be involved as much as possible because they want whatever agreement that comes out of this, they want it to outlast the current administration. And the way to guarantee that is to have the endorsement of the Congress. But the way they've structured it is it could go ahead as an executive agreement. And I think this is going to partly depend on the politics of the, at the time. You know, when the negotiations are wrapping up, whether it's three pillars or all four, I'm one who believes there could be trade-offs between the four pillars. There could be incentives built into the process. There are already some incentives that are, you know, kind of being put forward at the get-go, which you usually don't see. But the upskilling initiative that is taking place that's supported by 14 U.S. companies that's going to provide skilling opportunities for at least 7 million women in Asia, you know, that's a kind of sweetener right at the beginning. Could they build in more incentives along the way? I think so. Let's, and one of the things that makes me think that's possible is, is kind of look at investment flows and you know, what's happening in the world of investment. When you look at just ASEAN, forget the other IPEF countries, but just ASEAN, nations of ASEAN have received more than $338 billion in US investment. To put that in context, that is more than China, India, Japan, and South Korea combined have received from from the United States. And when I talk to my members, there's really a lot of interest in the private equity community in Southeast Asia because it's a growth area. It, it's one of the few parts of the global economy that is predicted to keep growing even during the next few years. And so the private equity firms, the venture capital firms, they're all looking at Southeast Asia. And that suggests to me that if there can be a kind of dynamism in this process and more investment dangled or and more, and these are, these are private sector decisions, but uh, more engagement in that region as a result of IPEF, that creates an, a set of incentives that would be very attractive. Let me come back to the supply chain pillar. I wonder, I think everybody agrees, and, and I do agree that this is where we're most likely to see early harvest, because it's the one that, that everybody seems to agree is, is important given the crunches that we faced amid COVID. But I also wonder if this is one of those areas where the details are going to get painful, as many kind of the region realize that they're actually competitors in the areas that they want to incentivize supply chain diversification. You know, Indonesia is now in pole position when it comes to critical minerals, and yet the Philippines clearly has much the same mineral wealth and wants to get in on the nickel and battery and EV yeah. game. Vietnam and Malaysia are competitor, and Thailand are competitors in chip production and the like. Do you think that we're going to, you know, some, some of this kumbaya, uh, you know, we're all going to share information and make supply chains more resilient is going to fall apart a little bit as we realize that not everybody can win every contract for diversifying supply chains? Well, I don't know precisely the answer, but I know that you know what we keep hearing is that, hey, these are really private sector decisions. What the government can do is create an atmosphere in which sensible decisions can be made that will make our supply chains not only more resilient, but more transparent and the changes in su supply chains more nimble. You know, COVID isn't the last crisis that we'll face in supply chains. 
I think there were, you know, we had the, the kind of knock on effects of COVID, including our ports being strangled for a while. There being, there are various bottlenecks that were built into the system. And I think part of what's happening is to try to set up a set of rules so that, uh, supply chains are so transparent and nimble enough that when the next crisis hits, you can, act quickly and deal with that emergency. FEMA is part of the supply chain discussion. I think that is fascinating. When has FEMA ever been part of discussions about trade? But FEMA has more experience than most agencies in how to deal with an emergency and how to kind of build, build in safeguards so that when you have an emergency, you can be nimble enough to address it. So again, I'm, um, I'm hopeful. I also have some faith in Gina Raimondo, who is you know, I think one of the stars of the Biden cabinet, she gets business. She gets that it's about implementation, not just about talk. She's a governor. You know, when you're a governor, you have to implement. You, sorry, I'm not, I mean, nothing against senators, but senators don't have to implement. Governors do. Mayors do. And she is an implementer. So it's been really interesting to watch her work. And she's in charge of that pillar as well as two others. And I think she's looking for action. Speaking of implementation realities on the ground, depending on which number you take, I think the percentage of MSMEs in Southeast Asia is somewhere between 95 and 97%. Yes. What's in it for these MSMEs, micro, small, and medium enterprises with IPEF? So, yeah, we actually, we run an SME academy because we're really interested in getting information to MSMEs in the region on how to run their businesses better. We've supported a lot of upskilling for SMEs who want to be part of the, the digital economy. When you talk about supply chains, there'll be a lot in it for them if there's more transparency, if they can see where they can insert their business into fast-moving supply chains. When it's all kind of dominated by the big guys, much harder for them to break in. But I think if the goals are carried out and you have more resilient, more nimble, more transparent supply chains, that provides openings for SMEs. And then we'll try to join hands with others and provide them the tools to take advantage of those openings. Looking forward a bit, so we've got the summits coming up, as I said, in a couple of weeks. Yes. And at the last of those, the APEC Summit in Bangkok, Thailand will hand over chairmanship of APEC to the U.S. for 2023. Um, awkwardly, President Biden will not be there to accept that handover because he'll be at his granddaughter's wedding here in Washington. Well, maybe he could just kind of stop by. Maybe? You think he might, he might swing in? You know, he could even, if you think about it, he could actually, going from, the geography is such that going from Cambodia to Bali, he could stop by for a few hours in Bangkok. There could be a symbolic ham handover just before the APEC summit, and he'd still make it to his granddaughter's wedding. What do you think? It would certainly help put a Band-Aid on some things if there was at least a symbolic handover and then say, you know, Vice President Harris will, will handle the next day and a half of discussions. Yeah. So let's say that that happens or doesn't happen. One big structural question that I've, I've been wondering about is if, if we take IPEF and the energy that we're putting behind IPEF as the U.S. government, well, it's not, it's not a trade deal in the traditional sense. There's no market access. It's not going to be legally binding unless something changes. So what it is, is a place to talk, to coordinate on supply chain issues, digital economy issues, decarbonization issues. Those issues have traditionally been dealt with in APEC. Yes. Is the U.S. Uh, energy and focus on IPEF going to detract from or somehow 
you know, uh, conflict with U.S. attention on APEC, particularly considering that we have China in APEC, no China in IPEF. We have an India in IPEF, but no India in APEC. <laughs> we have a Taiwan in a weird parallel IPEF right. that's only bilateral, but they're also in APEC, right? So for companies and, and for the U.S. government, how do you figure out how to keep the focus on both of these? Or does IPEF just kind of steadily creep into, on these four pillars at least, the preference over APEC? Well, APEC was kind of the place of TPP's gestation. I mean, it's where the ideas were shopped that eventually led us to TPP. I, I think APEC creates the ecosystem in which the best ideas can be discussed, can be vetted by countries at very different levels of development, and then brought into a negotiating framework. So actually, I think the two are, are complementary. I am quite excited by the fact that the United States will take over the host country duties from Bangkok in November and that the U.S. will host APEC next year. I think that pr provides huge opportunities, even if we're in a recession, even if the United States is in a recession, there will be, you know, like the private equity firms I, I mentioned, there'll be a lot of companies looking for where is growth, where is global growth happening? And they're naturally going to look towards Asia, where Global growth, I believe, will continue even if we have a slowdown in the United States. And so you can see a scenario where by having APEC here, by focusing American companies as well as Asian companies on the opportunities of Asia through having the, the meetings here, through bringing so many Asian leaders to the United States, where American companies could get more LinkedIn with what's going on in Asia. And that's what we will try to facilitate, you know, on our small way. We'll bring ASEAN ambassadors from the region to the cities that are hosting APEC senior officials meetings. We'll bring the ASEAN ambassadors that are based here in Washington to American cities that are also looking at Asian opportunities. And I think that's what the White House is trying to do, is to focus our companies, our business community on the opportunities of Asia. And yes, then a subset of those countries will proceed with these negotiations, but fortified by the fact that there will be greater consensus around some of the principles. That's the optimist view, and I'm an optimist. Makes for a good give and take here. Apparently, I'm not. <laughs> I feel like the pressure's on me now. Right. You have to be the pragmatist in the middle. Appreciate all of this optimism, upbeat excitement about uh, cooperation between the U.S. and Southeast Asia through IPEF. But there is a looming shadow in the backdrop, right? And that is of China. And so all this talk about supply chains, Southeast Asian countries, some Southeast Asian countries have benefited from the, the U.S. restrictions on China. But how does the whole supply chain discussion, how do you see it evolve as the U.S. kind of tightens the noose on Chinese supply chains um, to technology? When I look at ASEAN and I look at, for example, TPP or IPEF, what do ASEAN nations want? They want options. There's no nation in ASEAN who say, oh, we really want our economy to be completely dominated by some outsider. No, they want options. And they want to have as many trade partners as possible. They don't want to have decisions made in some foreign capital. They want decisions made in their own capitals. And what I see happening 
as we look at these various tensions with China is, well, we're working to provide more options. So if you want a, a strategy for dealing with a rising power, you need to be able to provide the, the nations that are dealing with that rising power with options. So I think that's what we're, we're seeking to do. I don't think these are zero-sum decisions that have to be made where you know we're either with you or against you i don't i don't buy that the nations of asean are all they're all their economies are to greater or lesser degree integrated with that of china but they want to be able to work with the united states they want to be able to work with europe with with each other without having to go to beijing for permission and i think you know that's what we're that's what we're engaged in doing i think that the indo-pacific strategy is quite good it has a series of work streams that make sense in terms of dealing with a rising China. It's not its only goal, but it's certainly one of the goals. But what it was missing until recently was a key economic pillar, a central economic initiative. Now it has that with IPEF. And that's what our partners want to hear, that we have an agenda. They want us at the table. They wouldn't have, you know, 14 of them wouldn't have signed up for IPEF and 13 out of the 14 wouldn't have signed up for all four pillars. They want us at the table because they want options. I'd like to end on the G20 as the one big economically focused summit we haven't touched yet. And it's going to be an interesting show, I suppose, in Bali, given the geopolitical tension. The G20 was born in the last Great Recession and did a remarkably good job of coordinating among the 20 largest economies in the world, including those who don't get along often, at a moment of global crisis. Now we're entering what is likely to be a recession. Uh, we're dealing with unprecedented food insecurity, uh, energy insecurity issues. And yet the G20, at least the, the high-level political narratives around the G20, has mostly been dominated by whether or not Putin and Biden would show up and, and how Zelensky would address the room. And it seems like the mission of the G20s, at least in the public eye, fallen by the wayside. Are you equally optimistic that the G20 is going to be impactful this year or is it going to be a political circus? The Indonesians have been working really hard to keep the focus on the crises you mentioned. They see the G20 as a really valuable forum so that developed countries and developing countries can get together and map out solutions to the, real, the biggest issues. The Indonesians have been focused on the food crisis. They've been focused on the energy crisis and on the climate crisis. Now, this is all against the backdrop of inflation and a possible recession and, and developing economies. And they want to make sure that we're doing the substance of the work of the G20 in the lead up so that the G20 is successful. President Jokowi did something very interesting in the lead up. He went to Ukraine and talked to President Zelensky, and then he went to Russia and talked to Vladimir Putin in order to invite both leaders to come to create the opportunity for there to be some kind of step down, at least when it comes to dealing with those three crises, food, energy, and climate. He, I don't think he's trying to set himself up as the peacemaker, the one who you know creates uh, a magical solution to a, a very, very naughty problem. But he's created a space where there might at least be some dialogue on the margins. I think if uh, President Biden uses the opportunity of the G20 to meet with Xi Jinping, that would be a healthy development. That would mean that there was a, another line open between the world's 
largest and second largest economies where I believe you need as many lines open as possible. Even if we're in a, a situation of much more competition than collaboration, we need to find the areas where we can collaborate, in my view. And the G20 provides that opportunity. So I think it's, a, it's still a valuable forum. I hope leaders show up. I hope they use it as an opportunity to seek diplomatic solutions to these very big problems that, that weigh on all of us. And I see that possibility existing. But it, it takes, a little, takes a little courage. I think it took courage for, for President Jokowi to go to Kiev and Moscow to try to see what he could do as a, as a somewhat neutral leader to help move things forward. I think that was a, a good move. I'd like to see more such moves, not because it immediately solves the problem. It doesn't. The problem that Putin has created by invading Ukraine is not one that the other members of the G20 look at happily. A lot of these countries don't think a larger country should be able to invade a smaller country with impunity. And certainly the, the nations that I deal with the most, ASEAN nations, they don't like seeing a large country invade a small country. No matter where they end up voting in the UN, they don't like it. And I think the G20 gives an opportunity for an airing of the, the challenges and maybe, maybe modest steps forward. It's heartening to see that even in the depths of 2022, you remain <laughs> committed to the value of pragmatic diplomacy. Hey, Greg, I wrote a book called Nothing is Impossible. I have nothing if not optimistic. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Ted, thank you so much for coming in and, and chatting with us. Alina, as always, thank you for helping me sound more cogent. I don't know about that, but thank you. And thank you all for tuning in again. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Alina. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. We're still green on the podcast scene, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. And tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller and Michael Kohler are our producers, and our interns are Nikki Arcado and Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Mike Tiernan. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.